Welcome to the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton. And I'm your co-host, Clint Walton. Today, Clint and I are sitting in front of somebody who I am so humbled and so honored to be sitting in front of, and that's, that's truly an understatement. And before I introduce this gentleman, I just want to share a little bit about some of the things that he's been able to accomplish in his life that came as a byproduct of him almost committing suicide. This gentleman sitting in front of me is a brilliant TEDx talk speaker. I, I will be so happy to share to share his story and his episode if, if he allows us to do so. And it drew me in in a way because as a police officer's wife, I know what it's like to experience some of the nuances of the things that that this gentleman so openly speaks about now. And it's not something that maybe you as a listener are so open to talking about. And it's my hope that you will be open to, to listening to what this man has to say. So with no further ado, I would like to introduce you to Mr. David Bartley. David, how are you? Great, Ashley. Grace Glenn, thank you so much for having me uh, be with you. And, and thank you. I, I speak on behalf of the audience that thank you for everything that you're doing to, to bring um, attention to this issue, especially within the, the way too thin, although mighty blue line. Um, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I just hope, David, before we get into some some of what has made you who you are today, if you could take the listener through a little bit about your origin story. Absolutely. So typically in my talks, I, I, I talk about, August, so it's August 31st, 2011, which almost exactly eight years ago, for most people, it was just this average hump day. It was Wednesday. But for me, it was like a day that I had no, I had never had because this was the day that the monster, as I refer to as clinical depression, had finally, after close to 40 years of passionate effort, on this day convinced me of his awful, and if you'll forgive me, fucked up lies, that I was weak and stupid and pitiful and grotesque, that I was utterly useless, completely worthless, and most damning was that I came to believe, not just as a passing thought, but truly as a, as a core belief, that everybody in my then life, my former bride, Deanna, my family, and my friends, the monster convinced me that their lives would not improve just a little bit, but their lives would improve exponentially once I was out of the picture. So Northern California, end of August, of course, no rain, there were no clouds, and I remember the day was gorgeous, went outside and I think back now and it was like my mind was taking these snapshots that I was collecting these memories in hopes of whatever the next experience is once we leave this life I, I would be able to recall these went inside sat down typed out my suicide note and then without telling anybody where I was headed got in my red Dodge Dakota pickup truck and I made the short drive from my home just outside of Sacramento to the Forest Hill Bridge now, most everybody, of course, knows the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, but few know the, the Forest Hill Bridge. And the Forest Hill Bridge is actually the fourth tallest bridge in the country. It stands 730 feet above the North Fork of the American River, and it is 500 feet further off the ground than its more famous cousin. Mm. Drove to the bridge, parked my vehicle, brought it to a rest, turned off the ignition, and then sat and reflexively put my hands on the 10 and 2 position on the steering wheel closed my eyes, took this deep cleansing breath, and then reached over, grabbed the suicide note, placed that in the center of the dash, took the keys out of the ignition, placed those right in the center of the note, 
exited the vehicle, turned slightly back to my right to make sure I left the door unlocked, crossed over the road, and then walked down this path that runs parallel with the road to the closest end of the bridge deck. And the bridge is a half mile long. It's 2,000 feet. And if you look, go online and look, the, the view from either side is spectacular. It is a stunningly gorgeous view. But I was solely intent resisting that temptation to look and instead focus. There's a light post right at the center at the thousand foot mark. And so I made my way to that center point, again, resisting temptation, making sure I didn't make eye contact with the passing drivers. Turned to my left once I got to the center. At the time, the suicide barrier was right about four and a half feet. It has since been risen to a little more than six feet. So again, resisting temptation to look up, bent over, and then focus on this dark circle of water in the, in the river. And became so fixated that I can't tell you how long I stood. It was a, like a pose of crucifixion. But thankfully, it was long enough for a passing driver to act on a, a feeling that we've all had that, you know, Clint is trained to do this, where you look upon a situation and you think something's not right with this picture. Now, often I've had that feeling and I've just dismissed it. But thankfully, this soul did not. She picked up the phone, called 911, and one of Clint's brothers in the, in the paradigm of great officers approached me from the left-hand side and initially established contact, which is a logistical practice, but then created connection, which is life-saving because connection creates hope. And hope indeed, in my humble opinion, is what saves lives. Taken off the bridge to an emergency department and then to a psychiatric hospital where I would stay for the next 15 days, having been rightfully so, 5150. And when people found out I was there and why, they were, they were shocked. They could not get their head around it. It just made no sense because instead of seeing me as clinically depressed or suicidal, people saw me as the happy and contented co-director of this huge nationally recognized animal sanctuary. And this animal sanctuary was an amazing place. It was called A Chance for Bliss, and it was home to as many as 100 animals at any one time, 25 horses, 23 dogs, all of whom lived in the house, by the way. Just pause right there for me. And I'm a, I'm a neat neck, believe it or not. And in fact, I'll shoot you a, a video, um, a link to it that was made for us. I am a neat neck, and it was amazingly clean. 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine potbelly pigs, goats and sheep and ducks and geese and bunnies and birds. We had rescued fish. We had rescued turtles. And we took in animals that were very sick, very old, or mostly at the end of life, so we did no adoptions. So we became known throughout the country. And at one point, we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today. So I didn't fit the image of somebody who you think of would be mentally ill, somebody who had been plagued by suicidal ideations literally thousands of times. But my passionate belief is sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen. And sometimes great despair and soul-killing agony lies just behind a forced smile a distracting joke, or in this case, a seemingly perfect and ideal life. And so as, as such, people had no idea, not even my former beloved, had no idea the degree of hopelessness, which I think is the true killer, that I had arrived at on that day. And just 14 short months after the mountaintop experience of being in USA Today, there I was, the hand of the monster squarely in the center of my back as he was doing everything he could to toss me up and over the rail with no more thought than any of us give to throwing away a piece of garbage. But thankfully, divinely, because of a woman who acted on a thought, but mostly because of a great officer 
my life was saved. And on a day I thought would be my very last day alive, it was instead the very first day of a brand new life and the first steps in what has now been this eight-year journey away from mental hellness into the experience of, of mental health. And mental health is not some privilege of the rich and famous. This is a right. We are born into this life, however we define it. This is our right. This is we all deserve. We are inherently worthy to be mentally well. And so my passion, my job now, the sanctuary no longer exists, is to go out and honor police officers, number one, and let people know that their diagnosis is not their identity, nor is it a death sentence. And you're not going to just wake up one day and be well. There is a very committed practice that if you follow it, based on my own experience and those heroes in my life who continue to influence me, you can arrive at this place. You, you know, David, that's so awesome. And something really jumps out at me as you're speaking. And I, I recognize this within myself as well as you, the listener, is you said a distracting joke. And, and I see this in every day when I'm at work where we faced with a tragic incident and we start joking about it. In that, I, I look at it as that's how we deal with it. But at the same time, internally, I know everybody else and myself, it, it tears you up inside. And over time, it just gets more and more pronounced. So in that distracting joke mindset, what's really opened your eyes and how to bridge that gap? It's a great question. And, and, and I agree. And I love the way that you send it, Clint, because part of it is, is necessary and helpful and, and it works. And my mother, God loves my mother, Suzanne, she said all, of course, like all our moms had these sayings. One that my mom used to say to me all the time was moderation is the key. So how much to a certain extent to, to diffuse a, a tragic situation, but at one point then does it mask over how we're feeling? So what's extraordinary, one of the things that I talk about is in this aspect of connection, how do we create it? And I think it's recognition, understanding, and expression. And understanding may be the most essential thing. And I believe that the most direct path we have to overcoming our fears around mental illness, and we all have them, myself included, is to leverage the power of curiosity to create understanding. And my belief is that the opposite of fear is not calm. The opposite of fear is understanding. The more we understand, the less we fear. And we have to have the, we got to ask these difficult conversations, these questions, and, and they are counterintuitive. So your brethren, masterful, after the establishment of logistics, first question out of this extraordinary soul's life, or out of this extraordinary man's mouth was, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? And I remember in that moment, from a, that's why I think this is such a great tactical resource, is that everything just decelerated just slowed down. I mean, no one had asked me that question. It's counterintuitive. The thought if we ask about somebody's critical experience, it's going to push them into a more critical state. And it's just the opposite because nobody wants to have this conversation. And then the second question was, how long have you lived with this condition? And David, how has this condition influenced your life? And then he said, what's it like on your worst days? And he would pose the question and then he would just listen. 
And Naomi Remen is a former pediatrician and she wrote this great book called Kitchen Table Wisdom. And she has this quote that says, our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts in another person. And so while I had a home in, in the literal sense, on that day, on that dark spot, on a tall, tall bridge, I was homeless. And this man in the posing of a question and then just listening. And then we created this connection and you just, you know, when you feel heard, that, that in and of itself, I think, is one of the most healing things. And then he pivoted me. And then he said, you know, what's it like to live and work with all these animals? And then he said, what's it like on your best days? And then the last question, which finally had me look up, was what do you want the rest of your life to look like? And I remember it's just, you know, hope is so, so I think, you know, faith is important, but I think hope is even more concentrated. You know, Charles Schultz says that happiness is like a warm puppy. Well, I think hope is like a whole litter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's jumped in. And I might, my great friend, Officer Mike Summers says, you know, you just, if you can create just that small semblance of hope in a person in a, in a similar state, you can potentially change their mind. And here was the other amazing thing. So I pushed back and then retraced my steps. And here's a man you know, I was 48 at the time. He was whatever age. And what he didn't say is, hey, way not to be a pussy. Hey, way to be a real man. Hey, way to pull yourself up by the bootstrap. He didn't say any of that. He looked at me and he said, thank you for telling me how you feel. So in that moment, he validated my experience. He validated my feelings. He didn't try to fix it. He didn't try to use masculinity, which I get. He just said, man, hey, thanks, man. Thank you for telling me how you feel. So very long-winded, forgive me, Clint. I, I think as much as we are able in the context of any environment, in police and family, with our beloved, with whatever, if we can find a way to ask a question at the feeling level, to whatever degree that's appropriate, because I think the condition impacts us at the feeling level. Um, you know, it starts with these awful thoughts, which leads to compelling emotions, which can lead to deadly actions. Connection breaks up that circuit, and all things it begins with this conversation, which I understand is not always easy to have, but because people don't want to talk about it, and it may take more than once, when people realize we do want to have that conversation, people want to talk. I mean, they really do, because it just is so incredibly burdensome. It just it's just an MF or of mythic proportion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And- you, as you listen to this, our, our intention before we hopped on here was to actually break this up in, into two different episodes, but I'm feeling this space so much and I don't want to break it. So if that's okay, David, if we just continue to go straight through. Absolutely. Ashley. Yeah. Yeah. I'm again, I'm here to be of service. You know, I, I have never seen the first responder since that day, which I kind of like in the sense that, and I don't know how else to do the analogy, but it's almost like a tomb of an unknown soldier, or let's use a monument to the, the service, the officers, the men and women who serve. So my job is to go out and, and to honor primarily for her, police officers, because that's been, but also first responders. So anything I can do. Um, and I got to tell you a quick story just because it's hilarious before I forget. So <clears throat> Officer Murphy, who I do a lot of work with, um, it's a, you averages like once or twice a month at the last training when I was done, she came up and said, well, I need to tell a story David's not heard before. So she said at the last training, 
there was an officer who called her and he, Ali remembered, he was the biggest, baddest SWAT officer in this training. It was the CIT training. Mm -hmm. And so she called and said, Hey, you know, I, I, this training was good, but the suicide guy was kind of touchy feely. It was like hug a thug. It's just, you know, I thought it was bullshit, quite frankly. And so like next day, what happens is he gets a call to a suicide in progress. He's walking up and the guy's on a bridge. And he's walking up and he has this thought, the SWAT officer has this thought to himself. He says, oh, what the hell? Go ahead and give it a try. And he uses the same question as that amazing man and got the guy off the bridge and tells Allie, shit works. Wow. <laughs> no, anyway, I just, I didn't want to forget it because it's just this affirmation. I am a touchy-feely, huggy kind of guy. But to have that kind of, one, for him to take the time to call and just be honest, like, hey, I thought it was bullshit. And I'm like, and he's like, wow, okay, this, this can work. You know, in my experience, I've really seen there's a time and place for the touchy-feely kind of, mm -hmm. you know what? let me share space with you, let me listen, and there's a time and place, let me kick you in your ass and right. say, get the fuck off that bridge. Right. And, and it's learning that balance for yourself as an officer to really approach and say, look, I can see this person's going through something I need to approach it this way. And it's using that tool belt that you have, not figuratively, not pulling out your gun or something <laughs> like that, but that, that mental tool belt of saying, this is what I know how to do. Let me utilize my trading because this has been proven to work. Yeah. And what's sad to say is nowadays, we're not using our tool belt for ourselves. We're using them for everybody else, but we're not using them for ourselves at all. And that needs to change. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more because just, I just, I think, you know, and every year, so it's something, I'm, just, I'm not a stat guy, but this in the bluehelp.org is, and it's an organization that tracks true suicides, you know, and they're able to really get down there into the, um, the analytics of it, unfortunately, it's just, it, it, we have to do something. It's just, it, it, it's unacceptable. And I think we got to, we got to work through, quite frankly, we got to work through the resistance within the ranks. You know, if I talk about how I feel that I'm going to be somewhat less than, um, and, and as mentioned to you before, I have a letter that I'll share with you whenever is appropriate that no, it, it, if you share how you feel, that in no way minimizes your level of masculinity or your effectiveness. In fact, it, for what you were saying, Clint, I think it actually increases it to not only for you to be able to have a greater effectiveness in your service to the public, but to your brother or sister who you're on patrol with, maybe your family members or the people. There's a great, there's a guy named Drew Ramsey who's a psychiatrist out of New York, and he has this amazing quote. And it's short, and these are his words, not mine. And, and, and when I read it, it, it was one of those things that affirms my approach. And I'm jumping around and I apologize, but I want to make sure because these things I think are so essential. So this great man says, someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your smile, your question, your love could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. Mm -hmm. So going back, Clint, to what you were saying, you know, what point do, and we're going to take it out of the context of you being of service to we citizens. And now let's talk about brothers and sisters in the largest sense, in the familial sense of on work and everything else is you're going to run across somebody today. All of us will. There is a person thinking about killing themselves. Every single one of us will see that person. Now, we don't know unless it's obvious. So that small act of kindness 
if it's a stranger or if it's somebody you know, and just say, you know what, man, something seems off. I'm concerned. Would you please tell me what's going on? Um, and they may resist. may need to be persistent. But I think showing up and being available may be that first step towards creating even the small opening to creating connection. So one of the dogs that we, we had at the sanctuary, do you know what an Italian greyhound is? Mm-hmm. So we had, we had two IGs. We had Max and we had Walter. Max was big. They called him a biggie iggy because he was like the size of a whippet, which is in between a greyhound and an IG. Mm-hmm. So Max was probably, I think I've had 65 dogs in 20 years. And Max, without a doubt, was the most popular dog the entire time. It's Max's belief, and because, you know, he has that long snout. Mm-hmm. Max's belief was if he could get his nose anywhere around your body, that was more than enough room for him to just un- unload himself into your lap. And I use the story because I think we as human beings are actually just looking for the smallest opening to create connection. We are so hardwired. We are so desperate for that experience. We just need that small opening. And that's actually good news then on the other side is that there's not many people out there, relatively speaking, who are like me that wants to give you a big hug. So we, in knowing that we really are brother and sister's keepers, truthfully, doesn't mean they have to move in with us, but but as people along the planet, that's our job. We only need to project that small little opening. If we just project, if we look for small, if we project a small opening in our willingness to create connection anyway, that will match up with another human being's desire for some sort of opening. And it can be just as simple as, you know, this small little aspect of kindness, but it lingers so beautifully that it can go on to make an impact. And, you know, if you think about what that officer did to me, he didn't just save my life. He saved this whole succession of other lives through there. Just, and it's just me telling his magnificence. And I don't, you know, I, I know of two in particular that he saved, two different people, like the SWAT officer and another. There's got to be, and even if it didn't necessarily pull somebody back from a precipice or, or a dark spot, it transformed you. I mean, I've been so honored to hear things when I recall this amazing man's story and what he did. His story impacted them. They then go on to touch other people. So it's just, we have no idea the degree to which our actions of kindness and compassion and love will go out really into perpetuity. I mean, this thing, I'm not going to stop anytime soon. So just, it's going to go on and go on and on. And it's a representation of Clint. It's you. It's officers. It's all these unsung things that nobody ever sees. The countless hours, the tragedy, the trauma, the stress, the double shifts, all these other things that nobody sees, which allows our great nation and each individual community for these citizens to live free. Mm-hmm. And then what's the impact of that? You can't even measure it. It's incalculable and priceless in every way, shape, and form. Yeah. And I think that's that's the perfect segue, David, for us to maybe go to that that 15 the 15th day where you were admitted and you have this this newfound freedom what what took off in your life and how did things change after that and then if it's okay i'd like to go into the letter right after oh yeah well what's interesting is it's it's an interesting paradox actually that my life actually within so i got out on it was like september 15th by the end of that year, I lost everything. So the reality is really my life even became more 
and forgive me, fucked up after I got out than before. And what happened was it was this horrific confluence of things that created that perfect storm. So critical health needs, misunderstanding and stigma and prejudice around mental illness. People looked at the great work we were doing, but then thought, well, the co-founder was going to end his life by suicide. This couple could no longer do what they did. So we lost all our support over a period of pretty quick succession. And there was some public shame. It was just, it was a nightmare. Handed the keys to the repo man. He drove away with my vehicle. The animals were placed in other facilities. Um, lost the home to foreclosure. And then my marriage ended. And so I was wiped totally out. What happened was what saved my life was I had made a friend in the psych hospital, a guy named Don, who was another middle-aged man. When Don got out, he found this men's depression support group. It was all middle-aged guys. And he went to a meeting and said, hey, I think this would be helpful. And for the next six and a half years, every Tuesday from 6 to 8 p.m., I went to that group. And from that group, I met my current therapist, my current psychiatrist, got on the right medication, and then met a, a wonderful guy named Will Taylor, who seven years ago gave me the first opportunity to speak. So I mentioned all that because you figure by the end of that year, I'd lost everything. Had I not had that connection in the psych hospital on that 15th day, then everything that happened in what ended up being the downward spiral, it was the connection that was created with that man, which led to the group and everything else, which uplifted me, which kept me going. So, it, it, you know, think about that now. Had I not made that connection with Don and didn't have the group, there is no way I would have the privilege and the honor to be with you today. Mm -hmm. So the 15th day actually was this entryway into, quite frankly, hell. But it was, it, it was this, the metaphor of being able to be uplifted while the, the fires are burning my ass to get me to a point. Then I went to go live with my two brothers and sister-in-law, where I still live to this day to allow me to have this healing. My, my former beloved and I are great friends in a beautiful relationship now. I have this opportunity to, you know, to make amends, to give thanks, all these different things in this healing process, really, quite frankly, all because I met one guy in a place that you would least likely think that set me onto this path, learn how to take care of myself, which is of body, mind, and spirit. And I think I put my self-care on a pedestal that's really what keeps me well. Because I would love to sit here and say, I've never had another suicidal thought and I've never had a depressed day. It still whips my ass. I mean, I just had to make a med change just because I just had realized that, didn't know this, I had a little issue with anxiety, which I'm like, Damn. So it's an ongoing thing. It's a constant, I have to work on it. Now, now, now everybody's not going to be that to that level of severity, but I am. But all of this, I was modeled, it was modeled for me, it was supported, my family was extraordinary, but it, and it, it is an ongoing process. It's just not a one and done, you got to stay with it. Yeah. And I know that you have a very special brother in your life, and you told us a little bit about his demeanor and, and a letter that he shared with you. I just wanted to know if you might be willing to open that up to the listeners for them to experience. Absolutely. And as I shared, had the great fortune to share with you beforehand, in, when I speak with officers, I, I divide this part about connection in what's the tactical resource that officers can use. And I think that's curiosity. But then what can we do to help one another? And it's do what my brother did. So my brother enlisted in the Army in 1970 as a loader on an M60 tank in Germany. The M60 
was the predecessor to the great M1 Abrams. Then in, got into West Point, graduated towards the top of his class in 1976. It was the last all-male class at West Point, and then just worked his way up to be a two-star general. And he's a combat veteran, he's a warrior, and he's also the, the kindest, most compassionate, loving, understanding man that I've ever met. So my brother breaks the stereotype of the, the quintessential military man. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think in this day and age in particular, and, and I came into this world as kind of a highly sensitive kid, and my brother's always understood that. And my brother's the master of a handwritten note. So first day in the psychiatric hospital, I get a call, and who is it but my brother? And at the time, he was active duty, and a, a two-star general is like a Fortune 50 CEO. You're talking thousands of people and billions of dollars. And so he calls, and you think, okay, well, you'd hope your brother would call. We, like, stayed on the phone for, like, an hour. Like, he didn't have an hour. And it wasn't like, okay, how you doing? It was this deep. And then the next day he calls, and the next day he calls, and the next day he calls. And then one day somebody comes up to me and says, hey, man, you got a care package. What? Mm. Who gets a care package in the psych hospital? Well, my brother. So he's just modeled this behavior. And then, um, as you were so kind to mention, Ashley, I gave a TED talk. And so my brother sent me this. In addition to all the handwritten notes, he wrote this note. And if I may, I'll read it to you. And he said, congratulations on your TED talk on 20 September 2018. It was a very powerful and profound, profound presentation. Joan and I watched it after talking to Jim on the phone, my other brother, and hearing him say how well you had done. I have watched it a couple more times since then and learned a little more each time I listened to it. It put into words what I've always known in my gut, but was never able to clarify and articulate, and that is your belief that connection creates hope and hope saves lives. It reinforces my belief that it's all about the expenditure of energy. By doing something, you demonstrate that you care to people because it is just too easy to do nothing. You take your most valuable resource, time, use it up, and by doing so, show that you care. Because you can never get time back nor create more, you have made a sacrifice, and people react positively to that forfeiture of time made on their behalf. In this age of technology, it is so easy to become isolated. Human contact that is needed by all is taken away, and with that comes dehumanization and the problems associated that we see so prevalent now. Connection reverses that process. I'm very proud of what you're doing and all that you have accomplished despite your trials and tribulations. Mental health is a huge problem, but you have made it your life's work to combat it. I am humbled by what you're doing. I'm hearing that, like, I can see the emotion coming from you, especially when you get to the end of how proud he is of you. And I mean, that really hits home. It's how often do we have family members really say, you know, I'm proud of you. Yeah. I, I care for you. And he's shown that over the years of calling you, sending you the care package. And it's just amazing that you have that support system that not everybody has. And no. thank you so much for sharing that. No, and you're welcome, brother. Yeah, he's, um, you know, and then, now to have your hero say, I am humbled by what you are doing. You know, I, it, 
Yeah, it's, um, and I think, you know, I, I think one of the people resist or are hesitant to move forward, even when we intuitively know somebody's in, in danger or hurting, be it by mental illness or grief or loss or economic hardship, whatever. And we think we're not qualified because we're, we don't have some initials after our name. But I think when we take, when we become great at remembering people's names, that changes lives. When we create the space for somebody else to tell their story, that changes lives. And when we use the power of a handwritten note, or in this case, even a type note, like you said, Clint, the people, when you get that, it's just like, you know, I, I, every time I read this, it's, yeah, it, it's like, if my house was burning down, I would grab this. This would be the thing I would take. You know, everything else can be replaced. This can't. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're so appreciative that you shared that with us. And David, to wrap this up, is there anything that you would like to share that maybe we haven't touched on yet? Um, a, a quick story that I think I understand what it's like for, for those of us when, when we're doing these sorts of things, when we're making these efforts, when we're, we're sending messages and leaving voicemails and being supportive and everything. And there's no visible difference how we may think, you know what, fuck this, this is not making a difference. So I'll tell you quick, another animal story, because that's what I do. So we had a parrot named Kia at the sanctuary and she had been abused by a man. So when we got Kia, she had this big cage and we had this beautiful great room and, and there was an armoire. And so we put Kia's cage on the top and she had a mirror in the back and she had this commanding view. Well, Dee, my former beloved, she was, brilliant in the creation of ways to care for these animals and I was a great implementer I was great picking up poop that's <laughs> great at feeding and so I was the feeder and every time I would go to Kia's cage she would literally shake violently spin around and go to the rear part of the cage and so I'd show up I clean the bottom put in the food water and the nuts so I thought you know I'm a nice guy I got this hug a thug energy to me and this went on and every time, you know, and I'm one thing I'm consistent and I'll be honest, it got to a point like, shit, nothing's going to change this bird. She's just going to be, the trauma is too great. So, and then I became disheartened. So I get how we may think what we do is making no difference. So one day I show up and I'm kind of robotic and I change the paper. Sure enough, she has gone to the back of the cage, just shake shook violently put in the water and the feed and it went to put in the nuts. She turns around, comes to the front of the cage and puts her head down. When a parrot puts their head down, two things are important. One, they have no defense. They can't strike you with their beak or their talon. And the other thing, when a parrot puts their head down, they want you to scratch their head. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my God. And so the question that I pose to audiences is, was trust created in that moment? Or was it all those different things that were done consistently? Now, obviously, it's the latter. Now, the bad news is we may never see the, the impact that all these small things make. But I'm here to tell you, having been on the receiving end of countless, not just then, but now, they all make a difference. And so I think, Ashley, to your question is just these small little acts of kindness. I read a bumper sticker one time that said, what wisdom can you find that's greater than kindness? Just these small things to our brother and sister that we're on patrol with, to our family members, to the people that we see, some small thing, just do them, do them, do them, do them, do them. And I think cumulatively, they hit that point where we will come to the front of the cage and make ourselves vulnerable, open to 
going to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, doing a support group, taking medication, whatever it is, those doorways are open by the small acts of kindness that any one of us do. Beautiful, beautiful way to wrap that up. And I can't wait to chit chat with you a little bit when we get off of this call, but I'm just so impressed by, by your openness, your raw vulnerability, your, your way to connect in a way that I know is going to resonate with, with so many people listening to this. And if anybody is listening and they might want to reach out to you, is there a way that they can contact you? Absolutely. Give me a call on my cell phone. Um, I'll give you the number. It's, it's 916-247-6389. Just give me a call. And if there's any departments, um, happy to come down and give a talk. I also, Mike, does Mike Summers does um, he's retired and he does a whole CIT training where he brings me in on one day. So Mike can satisfy department requirements for CIT training. So um, we'd love to be of service. And if, if people just want to talk one-on-one or I can come give a, I have five different keynotes and three different workshops that I do. Um, yeah. So give me a call. I'd be honored to talk. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'll link that in the show notes as well. And we are so grateful, David, for you to have shared time and space with us. And I just wanted to thank you again. Anytime, anytime.